Okay, so we're on the last week now of our spiritual warfare series. This is the second half of the gods and idols uh, section. And this week, we're going to talk about the beings that are called gods in the Old Testament. All right, let's go back to Exodus 20, where we started last week. Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, was his first commandment. His first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. It seems to me to imply that God thinks these other beings are there, that you could make them your God. Um, Some people don't interpret it that way, and that's fine. But whatever the case, the Lord says explicitly, you shall have no other gods, right? That any of these other, uh, whether they're real or not, these other beings uh, don't whether they're there or not, you shouldn't treat them as your God, right? I am I am meant to be your God to the people of Israel, okay? So what are these beings? That's the question we have to ask. What are these beings? If they're there, if they aren't, then they aren't. But if they are, then what does Scripture have to say about them, okay? Let's go first to 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11. By the way, the word for gods, and so we talk so much about words in this series, because I love words. Um, the word for God, God and gods, in uh, the Old Testament is Elohim. Maybe you've heard that word. It's been used a lot more recently, I feel like, in the church. Elohim is the Old Testament word for God. Interestingly, it's a plural word. Right? Elohim is actually the plural form of the word uh, for God. And so it actually means, if you were just to look at it etymologically, it would mean gods. And interestingly, it is used uh, interchangeably for foreign gods, meaning the gods of the other nations, Elohim, and the singular god of Israel, Elohim. Elohim, whenever you see the word God, capital G, God, in the Old Testament, uh, that word is translating Elohim. Just like if you see a lowercase g, gods, G-O-D-S, that is also translating Elohim. So context is telling you what it's talking about. It's talking about foreign gods, if it's talking about the God of Israel. But the same word is used, which kind of lends weight to the argument about what I was talking about, how the Bible uh, probably views them at some point to be these this reality that is not close to the the God of Israel, but it's of this this higher plane, this this plane of of the the worship of of these beings, right? Or that, that that's what's going on, and so they're associated with the God of Israel in that sense but they're not necessarily associated with him in terms of his power or his authority or the fact that he's the eternal creator God versus these lower beings. Okay, but I wanted you to know that that word is used interchangeably. So 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11, what's going on? Solomon, he's a great man. He's a good man. He's he's done this great thing. He's... uh, uh, very wise. He had a, a great moment with God when he chose wisdom. Um, and he builds the temple. He does all these wonderful things. But here's the problem. He stacks up all of these wives, right? And this is where we're at. 
he started accumulating all these foreign women um, from all these different nations, right, to make these kind of peace treaties. And, and he has all these wives, right? It says he has 700 wives, 300 concubines. And, and it's from these nations, which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, it said, don't associate, he said, don't associate with them, nor let them associate with you, because they're going to turn your heart away after their gods. And it says, Solomon held fast to these women in love. So he had 700 wives, all these 300 concubines, all these different women uh, from different nations, and they turned his heart away, just like the Lord had said. It says, when Solomon was old, this is verse 4, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, don't go after other gods. Right, so this this is ends up what ends ends up the the kingdoms getting pulled apart. Right, so you have the northern and southern kingdom. It's the the breakdown of the uh, united monarchy of Israel. It's because of this evil that Solomon's doing. But in terms of what we're looking at, what we see is all these different names of the goddesses and the gods from other nations. Right, but they're related to the nation. And so what 1 Kings 11 is telling us, one thing we know about these beings, is that, one, they're connected to nations. At some level, they seem to be connected to specific groups of people in specific nations in this in this sense, right? So Ammon has its god. Ammon has Milcom. Ammon has Molech. Um, Moab has its god, Chemish. The Sidonian Sidon has its god, right? Ashtoreth, well, goddess. Um, they, but they're all connected to nations. So if these beings are there, it seems they're connected in some sense to a national identity. And not only that, uh, the verse also says, uses idol and god interchangeably, right? It uses goddess for Sidonians and then detestable idol for the Ammonites, detestable idol for Moab. Detestable idol for Molech. Um, it uses these words back and forth. And that's one of the, the ways I was telling you that um, gets convoluted. Because sometimes they collapse the terms to mean one and the same. And other times they distinguish them. But whatever the case, these beings are connected to nations and connected to idols. So their representation, they're in some way connected to them. But they're also in some way connected to the nation as a whole. Okay? <clears throat> Now we're going to look at another term, which is sons of God. And what is a son? Well, biblically, a son is one who is like someone, right? Who is like the person that that has um, the person that is their progenitor, their father, right? That's the point of the term son. So when you have um, Genesis uh, five, I believe it is when when Adam and Eve have Seth. It says that Adam had a son after his own likeness. Uh, 
because the son was like him. Why was he like him? He was a man. He was a man. He was a man just like his father. Okay? And so what the term we're going to look at is sons of God. Sons of God. And sons of God is an interesting term because it shows up in the Old Testament um, several times. But this sons of God term uh, has a meaning. And what I think it's saying, what I, I would say it's saying, is beings that are like God. The sons of God are beings that are like God. And here's why I would say that. I'll show you the passages it shows up in. Go to Job 1. Job 1, it says, uh, it shows a scene of the heavenly court, the heavenly throne room. And it says that it was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And who's among the sons of God coming to present themselves? Satan. Satan is among them. Right? And this is where the Lord and and Satan have their conversation in Job 1. But what we're looking at here is that these sons of God are coming to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan walks among them. This is not humans. This is not saying sons of God, these human beings, came into God's presence to present themselves in his throne room, and Satan was just walking among the people. It's clear that these are spiritual beings like Satan is. Satan comes among the sons of God to present themselves before the Lord, before the Lord. So what we learn from Job 1 is that these beings are spiritual beings. Satan is among them. Satan walks as one. Now, the passage doesn't explicitly say that Satan is one of them, but he's found among their number when when they are presenting themselves to the Lord. So I think Job 1, not only are these beings connected to nations, connected to idols in some way, but they're spiritual beings. They're spiritual beings. Okay. Another passage in Job that uses that same term, Job 38, uh, uses the term sons of God. When are they found? Job 38, 7. Remember, in Job 38, the Lord has shown up. He's appeared in the whirlwind to answer Job, right? But actually, what he ends up doing is he, he questions Job, right? And then the questions he asks are um, these questions of how great... Uh, God's wisdom are, right? Like, uh, Job, since you're so knowledgeable, what do you know about the foundations of the earth? What do you know about the measurements, right? What do you know about what its bases were sunk on? And then in verse 7, God says this. Um, We'll go back to verse 6. On what were its bases sunk? This is talking about the earth. What were its bases sunk? Who laid the cornerstone of the earth? When the morning stars sang together... And all the sons of God shouted for joy. Okay? Pre-creation, pre-the foundation of the earth, or while the earth's foundations are being set, the sons of God are already there shouting for joy. Again, clear that these are spiritual beings, not humans. Because we know, according to Genesis 1, earth is made, everything's set in place, everything's set up habitat-wise, then the animals come. Then man comes, right? That's how it works. If the earth has not been, its foundations have not been set, if it has not been all formed and arrayed, the sons of God shouting for joy is not people. 
it's some beings that stood before creation, prior to creation, and shouted for joy as God made the world. These are beings before the foundation of the world. All right? So that's that's what we can learn from some of these passages. These, these beings that are called gods or sons of God in the Old Testament, they're beings that are connected to idols often. They're beings that are connected to nations. They're spiritual beings, and they were beings before the foundation of the world. These are... Every indication here is that these are real beings. Okay, so then the second question comes. Well, okay, let's let's say you've accepted the premise that they're real beings. Do they have real power? Do they have real power to do things? Are they actual beings who can make things happen? Can they can they bring some kind of demonic power to bear? And we have examples of that too. Go to 2 Kings 3. 2 Kings 3, this is a crazy story. The story goes that uh, the king of Israel, and at this point, king of Israel is two separate kingdoms, right? We have the king of Judah and we have the king of Israel. Judah being the northern kingdom, excuse me, Judah being the southern kingdom and Israel being the northern kingdom. And um, and they're, they're... still related, right? They're all, they were once united as, as Israel, but now they're separate, right? The tribes separate after that incident with Solomon. <clears throat> and so the king of Israel comes to the king of Judah and asks him to fight with him against uh, Moab because Moab's rebelling. And so the, they also go and get the king of Edom and they all go to fight against Moab. And what's interesting is... Uh, they go to the prophet Elisha, and he basically says, you know, the Lord's going to give you victory, but I, honestly, if it weren't for the king of Judah being here, I wouldn't have even listened to you. As the king of Israel, you've done nothing but evil. I don't want to hear from you. And if, like I said, if the king of Judah wasn't here, I wouldn't have even listened to your, to your request. But they say, we're going to give you victory against Moab. And... um and so it says they do. They go in and they destroy every city of Moab. All that's left is uh, Kir Haraset, which is um, the last, it's the capital city of Moab, right? It's this last uh, most important capital that they have. And it says they've stopped up all their wells and they've, they've destroyed all their trees. They've just ruined the land, right? They're ruining Moab. Okay. And so uh, Moab, the king of Moab, is is fighting against them. And it says, it's right near the end of the chapter. We'll start in verse 26. He's surrounded on all sides. They, it looks like they've got him dead to rights. They're going to they're gonna kill him. And it says, the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him. This is verse 26. He took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom so they could break out and and run, you know, they could flee, but they could not. So what does he do? They're trapped at Kir Haraset. They're trapped at the capital. They're surrounded. They try to break through and leave, but they can't. So he takes his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and he offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. And then it just says this enigmatic sentence. And there came great wrath against Israel. 
and Israel departed from him and returned to their own land. To me, when I read that, that's a display of demonic power. He takes his oldest son, offers him as a child sacrifice, and then demonic power breaks out against Israel. That is, to me, that is a sign. That is a sign of real power. The king is able to, king of Moab is able to do a burnt sacrifice to Chemish, the god of Moab, and then great wrath comes against Israel to the point that they depart from the, the king of Moab and go home. They are, every indication is that they have won the war, that it's done. Right? They're, they have ruined the land of Moab. There's only one city left. And then he does this demonic act of sacrificing his child. And demonic power breaks out against Israel and to the point that they have to leave. That's a sign of real power. Now, then the question becomes, well, what? They, so the, the God of Moab stronger than the Lord? That he fought against the Lord and repelled him? No, the whole point of the beginning of the story is that the Lord really doesn't want anything to do with these people anyway. He's not fighting for Israel. He's not fighting for this, this kingdom that has done evil and its, its king doesn't, does evil and it doesn't honor him and doesn't uh, do right by him. The Lord isn't there with Israel. The Lord isn't fighting for Israel. And so because of that, even though he promised them, you know, this victory, and they had it. They destroyed almost all of the land of Moab. It's just this one last city. And they they go to destroy this last city. And what happens? A demonic power uh, is, is utilized to defeat them. <clears throat> and like I said, I don't think the Lord's there. I, I don't think the Lord's fighting for Israel. I think that's why um, this demonic God can repel them. But that's a symbol of power to me. That looks like, everything in the account looks like that's demonic power being exercised. Okay, Judges 11. This is Jephthah. Jephthah's talking to the the, um, sons of Ammon. Right, so, excuse me, he's talking to... uh, Yeah, I think he's talking to the Moabites. Because this is about Chemish, their god. Okay? So this is about um the land this is about the, the Lord. The the uh, go to verse twenty one. It says this. This is Jephthah speaking. The Lord the God of Israel gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and Israel defeated them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. If you don't know, Jephthah is the judge of Israel at this time, his leading Israel. So he says, we possessed all that the Lord gave us. And he gives some territory markers. Since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites before his people, are you then to possess it? Right? Moab has asked for this land back. They said, you need to give this land back to us. It's ours. And he says, no. Our Lord freed it for us. He gave it to us to possess. And then he says this. Do you not possess what Chemish your God gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God has driven out before us, we will possess it. Right? That's the point. Don't you possess what your God gives you to possess? Jephthah seems to think 
their God has power to give them things to possess. Of course, the the ancient view was that when two countries went to war, their gods went to war. And when their gods went to war, whoever's God was stronger in the fight, uh, that nation would win. And so <clears throat> Jephthah here is saying, it seems to believe that Chemish, their God, has given them things to possess. It's won battles. It's he, Chemish, their God, has won battles and given them things to, to possess. And in the same way, the Lord, the God of Israel, gave them this land to possess. And so he makes that point. Now, again, that's just what Jephthah is saying. But I think that's what we see the people of God believing. That there are real beings with real power. Another great example is Exodus the Exodus account. We'll go to Exodus 7 first. What happens during the Exodus account? Well, during the Exodus account, remember the first sign that's given is this idea of a, a rod becoming a serpent. <clears throat> it gives it gives um, Aaron's rod to become a serpent as a sign. And the Lord gives that sign. And so when they come before Pharaoh, uh, Aaron throws his staff down and it becomes a snake, right? But what's the next thing that happened? Pharaoh calls for his wise men, his sorcerers, his magicians, and it says they did the same with their secret arts, right? With their secret arts. Each one of them threw down their staff and they turned into serpents. This is not a magic trick. The text does not say that Pharaoh brought in his magicians, and what he means by that is he brought in some cool sleight-of-hand people that could do some cool illusions, and they you know, pulled a, a card out of their sleeve and somehow threw down a wooden snake or whatever. That's not what the text is saying. And whatever happened with the magicians, you have to believe the same happened with Aaron. Because it says that. It says they did the same with their secret arts. So unless you believe Aaron's doing some kind of trick, he's doing some kind of magic trick where he got the wooden snake and can somehow he has a string on it and can pull it and make it look like it's moving or something. Unless that's what Aaron did, uh, then the magicians didn't do that. Because it says whatever Aaron did, the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts. Aaron threw down his staff and it became a snake. The wise men and the sorcerers threw down their staffs and it became a snake. They did the same. They used dark arts. They used secret arts. They used demonic power from their gods to do that, uh, that work. To do that work. So when... When Aaron did it, they could do the same. Now, again, it still shows the difference in power. It still shows the difference in who God is versus the gods of Egypt. Because, of course, what happens? Well, they're all snakes. All the staffs are snakes. And Aaron's staff, his snake, goes and eats all the other snakes. Right? The Lord is still more powerful. But somehow, through a display of demonic power, these magicians were able to make their staffs into snakes. It does not say that it was some trick. Okay, then it goes, let's go on, chapter 8. Now we're at the plague of frogs at this point in chapter 8. Okay, Aaron stretches his hand over the waters of Egypt, and frogs come up and cover the land. And so then the magicians, it says they did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Right? Right? 
So frogs come up by Aaron's hand from, from the command of Moses. And then frogs come up because the magicians can do the same with their demonic power from their gods. Now, of course, again, there's a huge difference because the frogs are everywhere from Aaron, from what Aaron does. They're everywhere. And to the point that Pharaoh has to ask Moses and, and Aaron to tell their God to remove the frogs, right? <clears throat> and this is what's important. Go on. to Still in chapter 8, go on to verse 16. Uh, we start the plague of flies. The plague of flies. This is an important turning point, right? These demonic beings do have real power, like we saw in the last two things we looked at. But there's a limit to their power. There's a limit. And here at the Plague of Flies, they find their limit, right? So Aaron stretches out his staff and strikes the dust of the earth, and it all became gnats throughout the land of Egypt, right? It became these little lice or bugs or whatever they were, right? That's... They come throughout the land of Egypt. And it says in verse 18, the magicians of Egypt tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. The point is they tried to do it. They thought they had the power, the demonic power to do it, but could not. They could not do it. So what do they say to Pharaoh? The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Now Moses, or excuse me, Pharaoh rejects that. His heart is hardened. Right? He hardens his heart. But this, what they recognize is that this is a power beyond what they can do according to their gods. This is the finger of God, the God of Israel. And what he can do is beyond what their gods can do. They try to do it and they cannot accomplish it. But that does not mean they did not accomplish other things. We know they did. So there is demonic power in these beings and these gods, but not the same as the Lord of Israel, like the theory we've set out this whole time. They may be called gods, and they truly do have power, and they are spiritual beings, but they're no way equivalent to the God of Israel, the true God, the creator God. Right? Chapter 11. We're now at the plague of the firstborn. It's the last plague. God actually tells us what he is doing in the last plague. And people often miss this. They think about the death of the firstborn, and they, they miss this key element. We're like, okay, well, the Egyptians are getting you know their, their firstborn sons killed. That's what's going on in the last plague. That's actually not... It does happen. That does happen. But that's not what's going on. What God says is going on is this. What he says... is this about midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones all the firstborn of the cattle as well and there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt 
such as there has not been before and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Okay. So then go on from there, right? So he said, I'm making a distinction. And that's what most people look at, okay? The firstborn's going to die. The firstborn of Egypt from man and beast, everything is going to die. And we just kind of read that. And that's the only part we think about. Go on to chapter 12, though. He's talking about Passover. Okay, I'm going to go through. I'm going to strike all these dead. But then he explains what he's doing. Verse 12 of chapter 12. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. What the Lord is doing on top of the killing of the firstborn, he's judging the gods of Egypt. It says so. Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I don't think that's just him saying some, you know, thing to like accommodate Moses and Aaron. Hey, you guys think there are gods in Egypt, so I'll just pretend there are and I'm going to judge them. I think he's talking about actually judging real beings. He's going to go through Egypt, strike down the firstborn, and all the gods of Egypt he's judging. He's judging for what they've done to Israel. I think God is saying explicitly that these beings are real here and his what he's doing in the Passover is to judge them. He's judging them. Okay, and we miss that. We miss that connection. Okay, the last one. We'll go to Daniel 10. Daniel is kind of the father, the grandfather if you will of apocalyptic, right? So Books like Revelation and all the books that came out in that time period when Revelation came out that sound like that. Enoch and Ezra, some of the later Ezras, uh, 3rd and 4th Ezra and all these kind of a apocalyptic works that came out in that time period. All owe their symbolism and their language and this kind of great visionary piece to the book of Daniel. And Daniel's really the first book that does it. <clears throat> Now, if you know chapter 10, what's going on is Daniel's trying to understand Jeremiah's prophecy, the one of the 70 weeks. And it says that he's been in mourning for three weeks. He's praying to understand the message. He wants to understand it. Okay. <clears throat> and what happens is on, uh, the, it says that he's by the, the bank of the, the Tigris River. And he lifted his eyes and looked. This is chapter 10. And behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision while the men who were with me did not see it. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. No strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength, but I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. And behold, he touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees, and said, O Daniel, 
Man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. So when he had spoken this, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to your words. From the first day, Daniel's been praying for three weeks. 21 days, Daniel has been praying to understand this prophecy. And this being says that on the first day of praying, he was sent. Why did it take him 21 days to get there? Verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Okay, what's going on? This being, I don't think this being, look at Daniel's response to this being. I don't think this being would have any trouble defeating a human. I think this being would destroy a human if it so wanted. The point is that these, this prince of the kingdom of Persia is some spiritual being standing against another spiritual being. Somehow, this prince of the kingdom of Persia, which I would say is one of the gods of Persia, <clears throat> the god of Persia, according to Old Testament language, uh, was withstanding this being was fighting against it, was delaying it. It said it was set out on the first day of Daniel's prayer, but for 21 days it was held up by this being. And it was only then that Michael came, one of the chief princes, so another spiritual being, right? Typically that's where we get the language of archangel. He's a good uh, spiritual being, one who's committed to God, right? He had to, Michael had to come. Michael had to come and help me get through. Because if Michael hadn't come, I wouldn't have gotten through to you, Daniel. That's the point. I, this being would not have made it to Daniel except Michael came and helped him. Now, I have to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. Um, at the end, in verse 20, I'll skip through the rest of this for now. But verse 20, the being says, Do you understand why I came to you, Daniel? But I have to return now to fight against the prince of Persia. He's going back to the fight. So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. Again, I think this is a god of Greece. This is about spiritual beings, and they have power to withstand. This being is doing God's will. This being is trying to answer Daniel's prayer, and God sent him from the first day Daniel started praying. And yet, somehow, a demonic being, a demonic spiritual being, was able to stop this this. I'm just going to call him Angel. Stop this Angel from getting to Daniel for three weeks. And it took Michael to come and help him get through. That is a display of real power. They're standing in the way of someone who has been commissioned by God to do what God has told him to do. And they have power to stand against him. That's interesting to me. That's interesting to me. I think that is... Uh, a show that there's real power in these beings, that they can withstand even angelic beings that are doing what is good. And I think we have to deal with that. Now, of course, 
one thing that comes up in this passage is these kind of spiritual warfare that's going on here at a level that Daniel's unaware of. And I think it's important to recognize that Daniel's unaware of it. Daniel is not somehow praying power into this situation. Daniel has no idea any of it's going on. To Daniel, the only reason Daniel knows that the spiritual war was happening is because the being comes, the angel comes, and tells him himself that it was going on. Uh, Daniel has no connection to the spiritual warfare between this being and Michael and the prince of Persia at all. And I think that what's one thing that's important is I think sometimes uh, in modern theology we get distracted when we think that this is our level we're meant to to operate on when it comes to spiritual warfare. We need to pray down the powers or we need to, um, you know, pray up, pray up, uh, power into the heavenlies or something like that. Daniel's not praying power into the heavenly. He has no clue what's going on. None. And um, in my opinion, I think this is just kind of above our pay grade. You know, this is this is the level of Jesus. This is the level of God. This is the level of the angels. What we're meant to do is confront the demonic when we come into contact with it. Uh, I don't think we're meant to seek it out. I don't think we're meant to to go fight against the the demons, in my case, uh, you know, the demon of shoreline or whatever, the the spiritual power that resides in Seattle or something. Um, I think I'm just supposed to confront the demonic like Jesus did. When he came into contact with it, he dealt with it. Now, Jesus is a unique case in the sense that, obviously, when he went to the cross, he dealt with the whole of the the demonic in terms of Satan and everything. Uh, But in terms of Jesus' day-to-day life, he was not seeking out the demonic. He... Jesus dealt with the demonic when it came to him. When his life personally came into conflict with a a personal demonic reality, an individual demonic reality of someone dealing with the demonic, he dealt with it. But he did not go seek it out. He um, He did not go out of his way to... look for some huge, you know, demonic power of Israel or something, you know, the demonic power of the Pharisees or whatever. He just dealt with the, the, the reality of what he came into contact with. And I think that's a good sign for us of how we should operate when it comes to spiritual warfare. We should absolutely be prepared and ready to fight against the demonic, to get rid of it, to uh, free people from demonic uh, slavery. And I think um, that's really what we're called to as Christians, right? It's it's being like Jesus. But I don't think we're meant to seek it out and and pour ourselves into it and walk around in free spaces from, um, you know, and by spaces, I don't mean like someone's home or something like that. I mean spaces like we got to get rid of the city's demon or something like that. I think that's that's uh, God's business. So... That's kind of where I would I'd land on that issue. Um, and I think it's important to remember because, like I said, the, what really we're called to is when people personally are dealing with the demonic, we're called to help them. And that's what we need to do. But um, weeks one and two dealt with that more fully. But I thought I'd bring it up again here. Okay, so last piece. Here's the last piece. We talked about this and we've seen it even here in Daniel 10. They have these gods, these beings, have a connection to the world and nations. Right here, even here, they're called the prince of the kingdom of Persia, the prince of the of the kingdom of Greece. They're still related to these nations. And why is that? What is that? 
why do they have these connections to the world? Why do they have these connections to the nations? We know God is the creator God. The God of Israel is the creator God, and he created everyone. He created everything. He created these other beings, and he created all people. So why aren't, why doesn't everyone just worship the creator God? Why is it that these other gods are over these nations? How, what is their connection to the nations? Uh, we'll talk about that. And I actually think it's interesting because I don't think this is a question that's addressed very often. And I actually think the Bible has more to say about it than we actually realize. Go to Genesis 10 and 11. Genesis 10 and 11. Genesis 10 is called the Table of Nations, typically, and is about what happens after Noah, all his sons, where do all his children go? And it talks about them going and filling the earth, really. It talks about them going to different spots on the earth and where they end up and what spaces they occupy. What's interesting is at the very end of Genesis 10, it says, these are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. That separated is an important word. Because the separation of the earth, meaning the people sent all their own way, hasn't happened in Genesis 11 when we read it. In fact, Genesis 11, if you know the Tower of Babel story, is the story of how the nations get separated. It's how the peoples are sent out. So Genesis 10 is actually, uh, it's speaking of what happens after Genesis 11, even though it's earlier than Genesis 11 in the narrative, right? So it's saying, here are all the peoples, and this is what they became when they were separated on the earth after the flood. And chapter 11 is the story of how they separated, how they got separated. Okay, so chapter 11. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Okay. Other than chapter 10 and 11, one, one thing that's just a note. Other than chapter 10 and 11, I think this is a terrible translation piece right here. Uh, just because I understand why they did it. Because Babel relates to the word confused. So Babel becomes this, this word for confused. That's why it's called Babel. But the problem is, the problem is that Babel shows up all over the place in the Old Testament. 
And only here in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 is it translated Babel. This word that stands behind Babel is Babel, Babel, and Babel shows up all over the Old Testament, but only here in Genesis 10 and 11 is it translated Babel. Do you know what it's translated everywhere else? Any guess? It's Babylon. Babylon. This plain that they came and settled here and built this tower is the city of Babylon. Okay, and it's important because, of course, Babylon comes to stand in the scriptures as this kind of quintessential evil city, right? Just the same way that, that Jerusalem stands as the, the quintessential uh, holy city, Babel comes to stand as the quintessential evil city, and that's why you have all that language of Babylon, and even in Revelation in the New Testament, right? Babylon is the great evil city. <clears throat> But it's confusing because you don't actually connect the two because they're two different words. But here in Genesis 10 and 11, it's Babel. And everywhere else in the Old Testament, you see the word Babylon. It's Babel. It's the same word. <clears throat> and so that, that becomes confusing. Here I understand. It's, it's frustrating as a translation. But I also understand why they did it because they're trying to connect it to that word confused. That's why it got called Babel. is because here is where the Lord confused their language. <clears throat> But what's important about this scene here in Babylon, they get a new technology. They have this new technology of, of using mortar and, and, and brick for stone, and they, they're going to make this great tower. And of course, what's the great sin? The great sin is actually they want to make for themselves a name. They want to self-define who they are. All right? And the sadness, of course, is that the Lord has <clears throat> is the one who makes makes a name for them, who wants to make a name for them. It, he already has. He's made them bear his image. And of course, instead, they want to make for themselves a name. And interestingly, they're worried about being scattered abroad. I, I don't understand that exactly. Maybe it, Maybe they know what they're doing is evil and that the Lord will respond. But they seem to have this fear of being scattered abroad. And that's exactly what the Lord does to them, right? Because... He says what? That they could do anything. Nothing which they propose to do. Nothing that they purpose to do will be impossible for them. I love that language because the Lord himself acknowledges the un, unimaginable potential of humanity. And it's true. As a community, as we have done phenomenal things. We have done great things. We've reached other, now with the, you know this Mars rover just happening, we've reached other planets. Uh, there's more things to come, I'm sure, in the near future. We have mapped the entire human genome. We know every gene that a person has. Uh, we have done incredible things. Unbelievable things. Things that uh, I don't even think most of us could begin to fathom. And we've utilized them in our daily life. I mean, how many of us understand how uh, even how a radio works, let alone uh, how the internet works, or how um, we can make recordings of ourselves, or how any of that works? Uh, there are people who know it, of course, but the average person has no idea uh, how the technology they've even incorporated into their own life really functions. Because we are capable of wonderful things, and for every wonderful thing 
that we can purpose to do that will not be impossible for us. We can do such unfathomable evil. Unfathomable evil. And it's not impossible for us to do. I've always said, I don't think that, that we're, I don't necessarily think we're getting worse over time. I think the evil that has been there for humanity has always been there since Genesis 3. Um, you know, Cain, the first person, kills his brother. I mean, the first thing. That's the first thing that happens. He murders his brother. We've always had this great evil. I mean, and you read through Genesis, these things are deeply evil that happen throughout the book. Look at Sodom, look at Gomorrah. Look at uh, all of these different instances. And really throughout the Bible. And, and I would say that no, I don't think we've gotten more evil over time. Um, I think we're just as evil now as we were back then. And I think we're just as evil then as we are now. The one unique thing, though, this is, this is related to this story here, that nothing which we propose, well, nothing which we purpose to do will be impossible. The one thing that I think is different is somehow in the modern age... We've mass-produced evil. We have manufactured evil on a scale that we never could have before. I mean, literally, what what happened with Cain and Abel, he murders his brother. We've made technology that we can kill millions in an instant. We can drop an atomic bomb on, on people, and we can literally, at the atomic level make them cease to exist. We can phase them out of existence. We can burn their shadows onto a wall and do it to millions of people at a time. You know, kids have been sacrificed. We just read about it. They've been sacrificed to demonic gods. They've been killed. Who would have thought we'd be able to kill because of the new technology we have, be able to abort and kill Millions of babies each year. I mean, our ability. It's not that we're more evil. It's not that there's more evil in our heart now than there was then. It's that we've made technology that makes it so easy to do. I mean, we've... Look at the pornography industry. Look at all these different things. Uh, we have mass produced it. I mean, the the access and the and the ability to do evil is just there on an unprecedented scale. So I, my point is that I don't think we're more evil as people. I think we have the same inclinations people have always had. It's just that our ability and access to do it is so huge now, and I think it's in direct relation to what he's what God is saying here in chapter eleven of Genesis. And it makes sense why God would want to to restrict community in that sense so that we don't commune together to do ever greater evil. That's what he's saying. Look at what they're beginning to do. Look at the evil they're, they're walking into. And now, with them all together, nothing they do, nothing they purpose to do will be impossible. I've got to stop them before the evil they that they're about to bring on this place. I think that's what's going on. Okay. So like I said, the Lord confuses them and they scatter across the face of the whole earth. And then Genesis 10, if you go back a chapter, is telling where they all end up. 
all these people filling out the different places, all the descendants, and they separate onto the whole earth out of these nations. This is the human perspective. This is what happened to the peoples, right? This is where the people ended up. Okay, that's the human perspective. <clears throat> if you go to Deuteronomy 32, though, we're given another perspective. Deuteronomy, if you go to Deuteronomy... Um, Deuteronomy, of course, if you know, is the re, the retelling of the law by Moses. It's the retelling of the law by Moses. It's, it, Deuteronomy literally means second law. <clears throat> and so it's the second telling of the law by Moses to the people of Israel before he's going to die, right? Before he's going to go up on the mountain and the Lord himself will, will bury him, right? Will, will close his eyes. <clears throat> and in chapter 32, he says this. It's interesting, he's talking about God and how great their God is, right? And he says this, verse 7, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father, and he will inform you. Your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High, that's God of Israel, gave the nations their inheritance when he separated the sons of man. That's a reference to Tower of Babel. That word, separate the sons of man. That's him talking about Babel. Okay, so when the Most High is giving the nations their inheritance, when he is separating the sons of man. Okay, this is talking about the Tower of Babel now. What happened? He set the boundaries of the peoples, he set their their markers, their delineations, their borders, according to the number of the sons of Israel. Verse 8. And the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. When he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples, according to the number of the sons of Israel. Now, this is one of those spaces. We're going to talk about textual criticism a little bit. This is one of those spots. There's not many in the Bible. If you don't know this yet, I'll rip this band-aid off. There's a bunch of uh, textual variants in the different documents we have of the Bible, but most of them are inconsequential. They're not very important. They may be the misstroke of a letter or something like that. This is not one of those. This is an important textual variant that changes the meaning of the passage, so we have to talk about it. The Masoretic text is the Hebrew Old Testament that we have, the one that's written in Hebrew. And its earliest full text is uh, that we have is from around 900 uh, CE, if you want, or AD, if you want, uh, 900. Okay, so it's it's uh, it's old, um, but it's not that old. But it 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 is recording a tradition that is very old. And that's the text we have here that says, according to the number of the sons of Israel. But the Septuagint, which I've told you, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The earliest document we have of that is from 200 BCE, or BC, 200 BC. You know, it's considerably older. And it interestingly has a different meaning, a different word there. It says, according to the number of the angels of God. What's interesting is the greatest archaeological find that has ever happened, of course, is the Dead Sea Scrolls, the most important archaeological find, the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
they also have this text from Deuteronomy. And it's around the same time as the Septuagint, right? 150 BCE or so. Okay, so it's right around the same time as, as the Septuagint. And it has, according to the number of the sons of God. Okay, so here's the three translations we have looking at this from different documents. <clears throat> we have, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, according to the number of the sons of Israel, or according to the number of the angels of God. I think this Masoretic text, the one that says sons of Israel, is not the original. I think it's been changed. I think it makes more sense, it makes more sense for it to say sons of God. The Lord split the nations according uh, to the number of the sons of God. What happens is the Lord gave over the people who, who did not want him, who wanted their own gods. He gave them over to these, these beings, these sons of God that became their gods. When he separated them, it was according to the number of the sons of God. And I think that makes a lot more sense in one way, because I, I, I don't know how according to the number of the sons of Israel makes sense. Because the nations, obviously, are considerably more than 12. The sons of Israel is 12. There's more nations than that. It, it doesn't make sense that he would do it according to the number of the sons of Israel. And also... I just don't know what what the point of that would be. What he he separated the peoples according to the number of sons of Israel just cuz he loves Israel so much. So the number of the nations is a reference to how much he loves Israel. I guess that kind of makes sense. What makes a lot more sense? What makes a lot more sense is that he separated them according to the number of the sons of God. These sons of God each received their own nation. He separated them so that each nation had its own God. And it makes even more sense when you continue on. Because what's the next thing that he says? Verse 9. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. Israel is God's inheritance. So when he separated the nations and gave them over to foreign gods, remember Romans 1, they all desired other things. They worshipped the creature rather than the creator. They worshipped uh, the idols instead of the glory of God. They exchanged the glory of God for idols. He gave them over to what they wanted. They wanted other gods. They didn't want to serve him. So when he separated the nations, he gave a god to each one of them, their own evil, unrelated god, because that's what they wanted, was this evil. They didn't want to serve him. But he reserved for himself a portion. And what portion did he reserve for himself? It was Israel. Israel was God's inheritance. That's why he, ch he chose them, right? He chose them out of all the nations of the world. And that's why specifically Israel can claim this God to be the creator God, to be their God. It can specifically claim him as their God because he chose them. The rest of the nations had their own gods. And it is interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, this creator God, the God of Israel, who is the creator God, doesn't claim to be the God of all the other nations. Um, 
in the same way that he does to be Israel's God. He claims Israel in a unique way. And of course, when we get to the New Testament, there's a new dimension to that, and I'll I'll talk about that in a minute. But what is going on here is that in the Tower of Babel, he gave the nations over to a foreign gods and kept Jacob for himself. And he says it, if you read it, let me read it to you with what I, I think is right. From, from And the Septuagint seems to reflect that too. Angels of God and sons of God is very close in terms of meaning. Sons of Israel is very different. And one thing we have to ask ourselves, why would it be changed to sons of Israel from sons of God? Uh, I think the same reason we would probably change it to sons of Israel rather than sons of God now. We don't want to have anything that implies there's any other gods, any other beings, other than the God of Israel, right? And I think that's exactly why it was changed. <clears throat> because it it seems more um, in line with monotheistic theology, right? That, that there's one God, which of course was central to what the the Israelites believed. Um, That doesn't mean they didn't believe there weren't other spiritual beings, but that their God was the one true God, was the one creator God. And I think that's why they changed it. But here, I think what it really says, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance and he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel, excuse me, according to the number of the sons of God. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. God found Israel in a desert land, and in the howling waste of a wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he guarded him as the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them, he carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided Israel, and there was no foreign God with him. He made him ride on the high places of the earth, and he ate the produce of the field, and he made him suck honey from the rock, oil from the flinty rock, curds of cows, milk of the flock, with fat of lambs, with the fat of lambs and rams, the breed of Bashan and goats, with the finest of wheat and the blood of grapes, you drank wine. But Jeshurun, which is a name for Israel, grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. Israel forsook the God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed the demons who were not God to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. He said to them, I will hide my face from them, and I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of Sheol and consumes the earth with its yield and sets on fire the foundation of the mountains. What's the point of what God's saying? I think if we think sons of God, it makes sense of the whole passage. He gave all the other nations their gods, but he kept for himself one nation, 
one portion, one inheritance. It was Israel. And he did everything for them. He cared for them. He guarded them. He protected them. He guided them. There was no foreign God with the land and the people of Israel. He gave them the best of the land. And yet, the nation that he had chose, the nation that he had chose forsook him and wanted the other gods of the other nations. And they made their God jealous by worshiping idols and worshiping demonic beings. They were sacrificing to demons who were not their God. They were gods whom they did not know. Gods whom their fathers did not dread. They neglected the God of Israel. And they forgot that it was that God who gave them birth. It makes sense the whole passage. Israel was the Lord's, and Israel chose to worship and sacrifice and serve other gods from the other nations. So they provoked the Lord to anger. That's what makes sense of Deuteronomy 32. The whole point of the passage is the God of Israel versus the gods of the nations. I think that's what happened from that divine perspective, from the heavenly perspective. Just like Genesis 10 and 11 tell us about their human perspective, the peoples were separated. From the divine perspective, God was giving them over to their own gods, each nation. From the human perspective, the people were being separated, each according to their tribes and their nations. But from the divine perspective, God was giving the the peoples, giving these peoples who were evil over to foreign gods, to new gods, gods that they had chosen for themselves. But he kept for himself an inheritance. He kept for himself a people, and that people was Israel, the people over whom he still was their God. Okay, let's make sense of it in the New Testament. Because I think this is so beautiful. Go to Acts 2, Pentecost. Remember, Pentecost happens. The Spirit's poured out. They see tongues of fire on them. It says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each of them were hearing the people, meaning the disciples, speak in their own language. They were amazed and saying, wait, aren't these people all Galileans? How can we all hear them in our own language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we all hear them in our own tongue, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. What does this mean? What a lot of people don't recognize is that Pentecost is the reversal of Babylon. Pentecost is the reversal of the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Whereas in Genesis 11, the people were spread out. 
they were scattered, they were sent away to the other ends of the earth with their own gods. And the Lord kept Israel for himself. Pentecost is the reversal of that. That people from all nations came and heard Israel, these disciples that represent Israel, speaking in their own language. Remember, the language was confused and no one could understand each other. And now Pentecost happens and everyone is hearing the message of God in their own language, a language that's bringing them back together. Hearing it from Israel. And what is the story as it relates to these gods, what's happening? God's opened up the path for all the people from these other nations who are under foreign gods to come back to the true creator God. They had all desired gods of their own, nations of their own. They had all been sent away. And Pentecost is the story that tells us now the gates are open for the nations to come back to the Creator God. What once was never was never filled with hope for them, what once was never going to be true, what they thought would never happen, that they could never be under the God of Israel, the true God, the Creator God, that they'd have to be under their own gods and their own nations. Only Israel was the Lord's. Pentecost is the story that that gate was broken down and all these nations, all the people of these nations can now come back to the true God, to the Creator God, because He made a way for them to come back. And if you're listening to this today and you're not Jewish, you are the recipient of that reality. As I am. We were once part of the nations under other gods. And God himself, through Pentecost, through the pouring out of his spirit, through the speaking of these tongues, that everyone could hear the message of God, hear of the mighty deeds of God in their own tongue, Because of that, the nations are coming back. So that no longer is it just ethnic Israel who is God's people, but everywhere that anyone might call on the name of the Lord, that they might be saved. That's what Peter says in his sermon. Repent and believe in what Jesus has done, and anyone from any nation under any foreign god can turn to the God of the universe, to the God of Israel, the true God. That's the power of that Pentecost story. That's what's making sense of what's going on with tongues. It's reversing what happened in Babel. And so we too have that hope today, that we can come to the Lord out of any nation, any place, any time, any people. And we can receive from the Lord. I hope this series has been informative to you. I hope you've learned a lot. And I just thank you for anyone who's listened. I hope that you too um, just remember the glory that what was once not ours to have, the Lord made a way. We couldn't have done it on our own. 
We didn't have a chance. We were under foreign powers, under foreign gods in our own nations, and yet God made a way, thanks to Acts 2. Thanks to what Jesus did, and then when he poured out his spirit, the church was born, and now we all have access through Jesus to the God of the universe. I hope you have some time to think about the glory of that reality today. Thank you for listening.